you would take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1996, uh, which doesn't seem like it's that long ago, but actually uh, it's been several years now. In 1996, uh, Billy Graham uh, did a crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I, along with uh, a few others, uh, got on the church van from Kentucky and we drove down. We went to the crusade. We went into uh, that stadium where the Carolina Panthers play. And uh, we took our seats, we went in, we listened to Billy Graham, and uh, my, my baby sister, my young sister, um, was with us, and uh, we listened to that message, and there's something about Billy Graham preaching. wish I had a voice like Billy Graham, uh, but there's something about his preaching, and uh, it's very convicting, not because of his voice or not because of who he is, but because of his God, the Spirit of God has, has chosen to use him in a, in a very unique way. But my little sister, at the response time, the time of response, she pulled on me. And at this time, she's, I don't want you to get the picture that she's this little girl. She's only three years younger than I was. So you do the math in 96. But she pulled on me, and her and I have a great relationship. And uh, she looked at me and she said, I don't know. I said, you don't know what? She said, I don't, I don't know if I'm saved. And everything in me wanted to say, yes, you're saved. I remember the day I was there. I mean, I remember you going forward and coming to the front of the church and the, the pastor introducing you and, and my father coming and my mother coming and my father standing there. And it's one of the few times in my life that I remember my father crying. And I remember him just uncontrollably weeping at the front of the church because his last child had prayed to receive Christ. And I wanted to say to her, yes, you're saved. Don't you remember that day? Have you blacked out or something? And she said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I'm saved. And all of a sudden, I had to go from being her brother to her pastor. And I took my sister and took her hand, and we walked down those steps, and we walked out on that field. We are following the directions of Billy Graham. We walked out on that field, and there were just hundreds of people streaming down and coming out onto that field. And on that field, I took my sister by the hand and I looked into her eyes and I said, do you understand that you are personally, you are a sinner? She said, yes, I know. I said, do you understand that your sin earns eternal punishment from God, that you have rebelled against him and you deserve to be punished in hell forever? She said, yes, I know. And I'm convicted. I'm broken over that. And I said, do you understand that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, came and took, took on sin, and took the wrath of God, the punishment that you deserve for you. And she said, yes. And I said, would you at this moment like to repent, turn away from your sin and put your faith in Christ alone to be your Savior and your Lord from this point forward? And she said, yes, I need to do that. And I prayed. And she prayed with me. And we, right there, she invited Christ to be her Lord and Savior on the field where the Carolina Panthers play football. And I've thought about that often since then. Was she right? In that moment, was, was she lost? Or, or did she simply fall victim to doubt that sometimes come into, comes into a believer's life? A few years later, in uh, 2004, I was serving on a church at a church in Kentucky. 
in eastern Kentucky in a town called Pikeville. And uh, we were at a church, and a particular evangelist had come into town, and he was preaching a sermon. And this was a godly, God-fearing church, and there were so many godly people at this church. And we were there, and it was a revival service, and he prayed, or he preached. He preached this sermon, The Wheat and the Tares. He talked about that there, there are true believers in the church, and there are also tares, or false believers in the church. And he preached it with, I think, maybe some ill motives. I think he was very emotional in his preaching, and I think he, he twisted people, and he began, he, he sowed seeds of doubt into people's lives. And when he cast the invitation, some of the most godly people that I had ever known came forward in that invitation. Our worship leader's wife, who was, I mean, just, she just exudes fruits of the Spirit. I mean, she was just a godly woman. She was in the, in the altar, and she was saying, I've never been saved. And she was weeping and crying. Was she right? Doubt is one of those things that all believers deal with at some point. You can't help but face doubt in, in a world like we're in. You can't help but turn on the news and see all that goes on and think, is there really a God? Is there really a God in heaven that's controlling everything? Is he really in charge? You, you look at things that happen like what happened at Cleveland Park in Spartanburg yesterday when a train turns over full of children and kills a six-year-old boy and you wonder, how could, how could there be a God in heaven that would allow that to happen? Doubt is one of those things that, that we will, as believers, perpetually face all of our lives. But the reality is, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven, and there is a Christ. He has bore the wrath of God. There is forgiveness in His name. For all those who would believe, turn from their sins and trust Him alone. This morning, I want us to turn to our text. I want to show you a, how a Christian deals with this all throughout their life. But in the end, they will persevere. The slide this morning says that we're studying glorification, but we're not there yet. Today, we're talking about the perseverance of the saints. We're talking about assurance this morning. Let's read this text together. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The Bible says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the exclamation mark at the end of that sentence. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. God, this morning I pray that you would preach through me. God, in this room there are Christians who are probably at this very moment struggling with doubt, wondering, are they really saved? Wondering, if they've somewhere along the way lost their salvation, is it possible to lose their salvation? Do they need to come and be saved again? Is there really a God in heaven? God, today I pray that you would speak very loudly and very clearly through me this morning. 
And God, without you, I can't do anything. I can't convey any of this truth. So God, I pray that you would make it plain and clear. And God, that you would deal with those doubts this morning. And God, that people would experience a very new, very real presence, your presence in their lives. Speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice that in this issue of dealing with persevering as believers, in this issue of doubts, Paul here starts this, this section, these just three verses here, three, four, and five. He starts with this sentence, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ! Exclamation mark. How in the world, in the midst of doubtful times, hard times, could he start that way? For he was writing this to Gentile believers in this region who had, who had been scattered from their home country into all sorts of areas and towns and cities all around. That's what the first two verses tell us. That they are the elect exiles of the dispersion. The persecution has caused them to have to flee from their home. And now they are living in foreign lands among foreign people who are not believers, who are hostile to the gospel and who are hostile to them as a result. They are persecuted daily. They are hated for their faith. They are mistreated. They are oppressed. They are abused. They are victimized. They are threatened. They are intimidated. All for their faith in Christ. So how in the world, Peter writing to this particular group of people who are facing this struggle in their faith every single day, wondering how do I go on? Should I even go on? Is there really a God in heaven? And if he's real, why is he letting me go through all that I'm going through right here, right now? How in the world could Peter start with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? exclamation mark. I wonder if when it was read to some of these recipients, if they rolled their eyes, if they felt their hearts drop, if they thought, this Peter is simply an idealist. Yes, things went well back in, in Acts. Things went well back at Pentecost, but he has no idea what I'm going through now. I wonder if right now, in this moment, he sounds like one of the health and wealth preachers on the television. That if you'll just smile and get up and face your day, everything is going to be well. God wants you happy and wealthy and wise. I wonder if they're thinking, he has no touch with the real world. But in, he still starts this way. How in the world? Why does he start? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's because he is convinced. He is utterly, absolutely sure of their future. He's not looking at their now. He's looking at their future. And he's absolutely confident that the God and Father of Jesus Christ has guaranteed it. That it will come to pass. And Christian, for those of us who are here today, we're not so unlike these recipients. For every believer... This side of heaven is living in a foreign land that is hostile to them and to the God that they love. We're not home yet. Our home is not this world. 
We also are elect exiles. We also are aliens dispersed into the world. So take it to heart as the world hates you. And you live very much out of your comfort zone. Longing for Christ. Longing for the next world. Longing for heaven forever. Take it to heart. And Peter says to you as well, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because our inheritance, our future is sure. Then he goes on and he says, he says some things. It's, he, he identifies what he is so sure of. It, it's obvious that he's sure of this future. Well, what all is involved in this future? What's included? Notice the text. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. We covered that back at the very beginning of this series, that when we come to Christ, when we hear the gospel call, that God regenerates us, that he causes us to be born again. Why does he do that? It's not because he looks at your life and sees something in you that is so valuable that he can't live without it. It's not as if God looks at you and says, you know what, boy, you're of the choicest vessels of all that I have made. I mean, I've got to have you on my team. You know, I'm putting together this dream team, and I've got to put together LeBron and Bosch and Wade, and we've got to put this thing together. God's not looking at you. Instead, he says here that it's according to his great mercy. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. John MacArthur, in studying this, pointed out that the the slight difference between grace and mercy, that grace and mercy can often be used interchangeably, but grace has to do more with our guilt. That you and I were justified in Christ because God did that in His grace. And mercy has to do more, though, with the misery, the effects of sin. And so writing here to these dispersed believers who are living among persecution, hated every single day of their lives... He draws attention to it's a, the, the mercy of God, according to the great mercy of God, for the misery that you are now in. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter here is sure that we live with a hope because if Jesus was raised from the dead, so will those who follow him be raised from the dead. That if Jesus didn't stay in the grave, that you won't either. And if we could just get our minds around that, that there is nothing in this world that could ever separate us from the love of God, not even death itself, if we would be so sure of that, it would cause us to live with hope. It is a living hope. He has caused us, according to His great mercy, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first of many that will come after Him. And if you've trusted Christ, death is not the end. That we don't, that there is no such thing as annihilation. That you don't just cease to exist. Nor is there universalism. Rob Bell, who's famous for 
the NUMA series videos. Many of you have probably seen those videos, and many of them were probably harmless in a lot of ways. He's written a new book. In this book, he does away with hell. And he says that hell is outdated and that hell really doesn't exist, that God is a God of love, and it doesn't matter if you come to God through Christ or not, that all will be saved in the end. And if, if, if that were true, then why did Christ die? And why was He raised again? So that He could become the first fruits of all that would believe in Him. That would come forsaking their sin and trusting Him alone. According to this great, His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Oh, this is where it begins to get good. This is where Peter says, this is what you have to look forward to. The very nature of the word inheritance immediately makes us think of a future event. An inheritance is not something that you have here and now. An inheritance is something that you look forward to. It is not a now event, it is a future event. One of the most common ways that inheritance was spoken of in the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, was when referring to the Israelites looking forward to their inheritance of the Promised Land. Speaking of Canaan, did they go right into the Promised Land? When the promise was made to Abraham that, that they would go into this land, did they go right then? No. They endured hundreds of years of oppression and slavery in the land of Egypt. And then even after they came out of Egypt, they endured decades wandering in the wilderness until an entire generation died off. And finally, they entered the promised land. They finally went home. They, Peter wants to remind them, and the language would not have been lost on them, that theirs is not a now event. That I am so confident in our future that God, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, has secured it, that I can begin by praising Him. And I can point you to your best life then, not your best life now. There is a mindset, a philosophy, a teaching out there that exists in many churches across our land that tells us that we are to have our best life now. The problem with that is you find that nowhere in Scripture. Jesus never promises to give you all of what you want for this life right here. In fact, He tells us that this world is not our home. That we are heading to our best life where every tear will be wiped away and all sickness will be done away with and there will be no more death, there will be no more crying. But it's not in this world. And there are a lot of believers in a lot of churches that are putting on this plastic face and trying to create heaven on earth. But heaven is not meant to be on earth right now. We are not there yet. There is an inheritance coming. We often, we often find Christians who live lives that tell a different story. They live these lives seeking their best life now. They live for this best world, this best circumstance, this euphoria here. But they're, they're, they're disappointed time and time and time again. Again. 
How many times have you heard someone tell a child, you can be anything you want to be in life? I can tell you, that's just not true. I mean, it's just not true. And I don't, I don't mean to, I'm not going to point it out to anybody's kids. But I go to Abner Creek, you know, not every week, but I go up there and we do Good News Club and, and I'm around kids a lot. I go and I speak at kids' camps through the summer and different things. And I see these kids and I'm thinking, uh-uh, that child will never be president. Well, if they are, I'm moving to Canada or something. I don't know. You, you, you look at some people and you say, you can be anything you want to be. Then they open their mouth and they begin to try to sing. And you say, uh-uh, no, no, entertainment is not in your future. You turn on ESPN and you, you, you watch SportsCenter and, and you hear the commentators talk about the athletes and particularly the freshmen. And they look at these incoming freshmen and they say, he has unlimited potential. no. No, his potential is limited. I mean, if he has unlimited potential, I mean, he can run 150 miles an hour. Nobody's catching him. He has limited potential. And we have bought this lie and we are selling this lie that you can be anything you want to be. You can chase your best life now. But the reality is, when you buy that lie and begin to chase that lie, you will be disappointed every single time. When I was growing up, I wanted to be the next Randy Travis. I was going to be the next big thing in country music. And I would sit in my room and I would sing, You're my always and forever. And I would just sing like that, you know. <laughs> You're the one that hung the moon. Yeah, he, all that, just, you know, I'd look in the mirror and I'd do the facial expressions and I'd do all that sort of thing. And I'd say, I'm going to Nashville. And guess what? I have limited potential and it wasn't what God had for my life. There came a point where I had to look myself in the mirror and say, this life is not about what I want. This life is not my home. It's not mine to mess with and to run after. My life exists only because He gives me breath and He causes my heart to beat and He directs me where He wants me to go. So much of our living is wrapped up in us. John MacArthur, he says this, he says, We are not, as a church to G of Jesus Christ, offering people their best life now. That set sets up an impossible illusion because that allows them to define what their best life is. And then it forces Jesus to deliver on that. And when he doesn't, they leave. We need to quit selling people this lie of, Jesus just wants you to be happy. Jesus wants you to be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. Instead, we are to live for an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept in heaven for you, he says. We cannot use these descriptors for any other thing in this world. Every other thing we live for fades. Your, your body will fade. Your wealth will fade. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth where moth come and eat and rust destroys. 
but instead store up treasures in heaven. So Peter starts this and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because according to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope and to an inheritance. So how can he be so sure? That's the question I want us to get to today. How is it that he can be so sure? Is this just preacher speak? Is this just what sounds good? How can he be so sure? How can he claim to know for sure when others are so reluctant? Different religions of the world today have vast followings and are growing by leaps and bounds, but the common denominator between all of them is that when you get down to it, they have no assurance of what the future holds. They hope that in the end it will be enough. They hope that in the end their life will cause God to, their idea of God to become propitiated toward them. That, that it will be enough to turn His wrath away from them and that He will let them into heaven. They just hope that's the case. But the Bible repeatedly says that ours is not a I hope so in the end kind of thing. That ours is a sure deal based on the finished work of Christ. So how can, how can he be so sure? Look at what he says in verse 5. Who by God's power, who by God's power are being guarded. I would ask you, who is more powerful than God? No one. There's no one more powerful than God. There is no thing more powerful than God. And beyond that, there is no limit to his power. He is omnipotent. So, according to that power, he's guarding you. And the word guarded there has two meanings. The, the first meaning that it has of guarding you is to mean, it means to be kept from escaping. So, according to or by God's power, you are being kept from escaping. One of my all-time favorite movies. Anybody like movies? One of my all-time favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. You know, it comes on TBS, TNT, they replay the thing. Um, I'm not, not encouraging you to go out and see it or whatever. I'm just saying that's one of my favorite movies. And when I watch it, no matter how many times I've seen it, I still am just intrigued, enthralled in the story. The story is that this man has murdered his, his, his wife who was in an affair with, with another man. He killed them both and that he's in prison now. And that while he's in prison, he's in there for years. He begins to, very early on, without anyone knowing, he, he takes this little rock hammer and he begins in his cell every night to begin to dig into the wall. At first, he started out, he was just going to write his name, just going to scratch a little something in the wall. And when he did, the wall just, a huge chunk just came out of the wall. And he, for years, I mean decades, he digs on this wall with this little rock hammer. And all the while, he keeps it protected by this poster that's hanging on his wall. And every night, he would pull that poster out and he would get behind there and he would dig a little bit more on there. Until one day, decades later, he's not in his cell in the morning. And the warden comes in and he's mad and he can't figure out what happened and he's mad at the guards and mad at everybody. 
And he takes one of the little figurines that he has up in his window and he says, and I'm even mad at her too, and points to the woman on the poster. And he throws the rock at her and it just goes straight through. And he doesn't hear it hit the wall. And when he lifts the poster up, there's this hole, this tunnel that's been dug through his wall. And it goes out through the wall and he winds up climbing through 500 yards of sewer pipe to freedom. There are some people that view themselves in their faith in that way. They see themselves as both the warden and the prisoner. They work hard to keep themselves in, but they believe the actions and that their, their actions and their thoughts of their old nature are constantly planning and plotting and working against them. And they're afraid that one day the poster of their life is going to be lifted then it will be discovered that they are not not there. That they are no longer in the faith. That their old nature through their sin has caused them to be cast out or to be lost again. There are some that believe that their life, their sins, will cause them to lose their salvation. The reality is, though, that Jesus says, it was never yours to earn, therefore it's never yours to lose. You didn't get in by your merit, and you won't get out by your merit either. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The reality is you can't do anything to lose your salvation if you are genuinely saved. Because Jesus is the one who is guarding you from escaping. It's a wonderful meaning of studying the language there. Jesus will not lose any that the Father has given him no matter what. The second meaning for the word guarded, though, means to be protected from attack. Not only to be kept from escaping, but to be protected from attack. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. Who He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is why Paul could confidently say, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how did he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Hear the language there. Who shall attack you if you are secure in your salvation? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this issue of your assurance in your salvation, will you make it to the end? Will you lose your salvation? Will there be something that will happen? No, because God is the one who by his own power is keeping you from escaping and also protecting you from attack. That's good, right? All right. So does this mean that we can simply pray a prayer and then live any way that we want? That's what it sounds like you're saying, Pastor, that nothing I do can ever cause me to lose my salvation. No. There are certain phrases that that lead us to believe that. That lead us to believe that we can live however we want to live. Phrases like eternal security or once saved, always saved are misleading. Because it sounds like all you've got to do is pray a prayer. And then nothing you do from that point forward will ever take you out of God's hand. The reality is that just because you pray a prayer doesn't mean that you ever were saved. I have known pastors that that have said, you know, just say it. Just get them to pray it. As if it were Amway. Or just some contract. If we can just get them to sign up, we've got them forever. No. We continue in verse 5 and he says, through faith. That God by his own power is guarding you. But then he says, by faith. Scripture teaches that while there is not a specific sin or a certain number of sins that will cause us to lose our salvation, a true Christian's life will be marked by persevering obedience and abiding faith. A true believer will be marked by a different kind of life. They will not be able to continue in sin and just act as if there's no big deal. For a true believer, when you sin, it will convict you. The Holy Spirit will bring you to repentance. Jesus talks about this issue of persevering in faith in John 8.31 when he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23 when he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in the mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The issue here is those who are truly saved will continue. Wayne Grudem says it this way in talking about the verse that I just read in Colossians. He says, Paul's not trying to threaten or scare true believers. Instead, he is saying that those who don't truly believe will eventually fall away from the faith they claim to have. We see this in the parable of the soils. When the sower goes out to sow, there are those that receive it quickly and with joy it springs up in their life. And it looks all wonderful, but when hard times come, when the scorching heat of the sun comes out, They wither away because there's no true root. 
And the Bible here is teaching us that those who are truly saved will persevere to the end. And one of the, one of the marks, one of the best ways to be assured in your faith is to take a look and say, is there this mark of perseverance? Is there this mark of whatever comes my way, I, I still somehow find my way back to the Lord? I still continue in the faith. I'm still believing and trusting. And there's no, there's no boast in that. There's no claim that you can make on that, that it's you who's doing that. That even that is a gift of God. We all know someone who has professed to be a Christian, but then later on walked away from the faith. The reality is, they were never truly saved. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In dealing with this issue of salvation and where this lines up in the application of redemption, before you get to heaven, before you reach death, the Bible says that you will be kept from escaping and protected from attack so that this faith will continue to be produced in you all the way to the end. That doesn't mean that there will be seasons in your life where the faith isn't as fiery as it once was. There will be those seasons. But the pattern of your life will be one that is lived Godwardly because you are being kept by God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those of us who are truly believers, we don't need to doubt. We don't need to come to this issue and say, I just don't think I'm really saved. Instead, we need to go back to where we first began and say, it is by the power of the cross that I still am there. It's in His work, not mine. It was in His work that I began. It is in His work that I continue. It is in His work that one day it will be completed and I will be transported into the presence of God. I can't do anything more to earn any more favor with God, nor can I do anything to fall in any less favor with God. God alone. God alone is to be praised for our perseverance. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, in this room, I know that there are probably people that are dealing with this issue of doubt. And God, I pray for those who are truly believers. God, I pray that you would stir within them this assurance that Peter displays when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let them hold fast to the faith. Let them be confident that there is this living hope and there is this future inheritance. But God, for those in this room that are doubting and doubting for good reason because they 
have never truly been saved, God, I pray today that you would lead them to repentance. God, that you would lead them to faith. And that today would be the day of salvation. And they would be gloriously converted and justified and adopted into your family. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.